If you have a Bible this morning, open with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. We'll be in 1 Timothy 3 this morning. I'm getting a little uh, feedback back here. Maybe Sam's already on it. Um, we've spent the last several weeks looking at this, uh, this short letter from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. We've given a little bit of background, but Timothy is, uh, Timothy is pastoring this church in a city called Ephesus, uh, which was a, a wealthy port city in uh, the Roman uh, province of Asia. It was a, a kind of urban hub, uh, and it was really the center of worship for the pagan goddess Artemis, or Diana. The, the temple of Artemis was actually there in Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, along with the pyramids in Egypt. Ephesus was also known as the center of, one of the centers of the occult, of, of pagan magic. And, and also the home, uh, there was a temple there to worship the emperor of Rome and his family. So Ephesus was a very confused and confusing city religiously, confused spiritually. It was known for its spiritual disorder. And, and this, this chaos and this spiritual speculation about all these different kinds of beliefs, has, as we saw in, in 1 Timothy 1, it's infiltrated the church. Paul even mentions a few of these leaders by name. He calls them out specifically for their endless kind of speculation um, and, and this blurring of lines between what is truth and what is false getting lost in speculation and controversy. And then he, he, so he sends Timothy to essentially restore order and peace into this fractured community in Ephesus, in this church. As we've, as we've noted each week, Paul states his purpose uh, really clearly in 1 Timothy 3. He says, I hope to come to you. This is in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. So that's why, that's why Paul is writing to Timothy. In other words, he's saying, I want, you to, I want you to know how to live as God's people. I want you to be anchored in the truth. I want you to know how to behave in the household of God. Marcus gave us the, the, the image a few weeks ago, which I think is a really helpful image as we think about the family and the household of God. He gave us this idea of a family crest. And, and on God's family crest are these things that communicate what kind of family this is. What, what are the values of our family together as Christians? So we talked about truth being an emblem on God's family crest. We talked about love being an emblem on God's family crest. Last week we talked about humility being on the emblem of God's family crest. And here in chapter 3 we, we, see, uh, we see another emblem, or, or in some ways an, an emblem that's there to protect and ensure the other three. The mark, the emblem of leadership. Or another way that you could think about it would be maybe in terms of, of order, that God's household, in, in contrast to the spiritually confused city of Ephesus, God's household is marked by order, which requires leaders to hold together the values of truth, love, and humility, which is especially critical in a culture dominated by chaos, as Ephesus was, and I think in many ways as our culture is today. So Paul gives Timothy a, a structure for church leadership. In chapter 3, he lays out these, these two distinct 
offices, these two distinct roles, the office of elder, which we'll talk about today, and the office of deacon, which God willing, we'll, to- we'll cover next week. So let's read this together. Let's read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7 together. Paul says this in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, some of you, maybe if you have an older Bible, maybe like the King James, it may say bishop there. He desires a noble task. And therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? And he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up, puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this truth. God, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us, um, God, those who you've, you've called to, to serve in this role as overseer, as elder, as pastor. And God, we pray for us as a church that we would, that, that we would this, this list was uh, just reflecting of what it means to be part of a faithful member of God's family. And God, I pray that you would help us all reflect these qualities, characteristics. God, be with us this morning. We pray that you would speak to us. God, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, now before we get to um, the details of the role and qualifications of an elder, of an overseer, I want to lay out a few um, maybe guiding principles as we think about church leadership in general. These are important for us to understand as we get into the, the, the details of what it means to be an elder or a deacon. So let me give you these three guiding principles as we think about church leadership. Here's guiding principle number one. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Here, here's guiding principle number two. Every Christian, if you're a Christian here, every Christian is a priest and minister in God's family. All of us, if we bear the name Christian, are called to serve and minister in God's family. And here's number three, that God does call some to serve uniquely in these roles of elder and deacon. So those are the guiding principles. Jesus is the head of the church. Every Christian is a priest and minister in God's family. And yet still God calls some to serve uniquely as elders and deacons. So let's start with that guiding principle number one, that Jesus is the head of the church. Paul says this very succinctly in Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Also in Ephesians, Paul will go on in Ephesians 4, he'll say, rather speaking, and again, you'll, you'll hear these themes that he's already talking about uh, to, first, to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, right, you're seeing these emblems, you're seeing these marks of the family. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we are, these, we are a part of this body. He serves as our head. He leads us. He guides us. We are growing up into him. We are joined and held together by every joint um, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow 
so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus is the head of the church, not, not the senior or lead pastor, not, not the pope, not the board of elders, not the bishops or cardinals, not the church staff, not the most gifted communicator or Bible teacher, not the most credentialed, but Jesus. Jesus is our head. He, he, is, he is the head and most senior leader, the lead shepherd of every congregation. And, and everything that we do as a church, everything that we do as God's people or everything that we attempt to do should be in accordance with, with Jesus' word. Our mission should be Jesus' mission to make disciples. Our success depends entirely on our faithfulness to Jesus' standards of success, not our own standards of success, not what the world says is successful, but on Jesus' standard of success because he is the head of our body. Here's guiding principle number two. Every Christian is a priest and minister in God's family. Peter would say in, in 1 Peter 2.9, speaking to the church, you are a chosen race. Listen to this, listen to this word that, that, that God's word is speaking to us as Christians. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. So Peter's making this really clear claim on all Christians that we are, we are God's people, that, that, he, that we, don't, we don't need another mediator between us and God only through the person and grace of Jesus. We are bought of his own possession so that we may proclaim, we leave, live these lives of proclamation that, that God brought me out of this darkness into this marvelous light. We are proclaiming priestly people. Paul, again, what Marcus read at the beginning of the service, that leaders are called, this language is important, that leaders are called to equip the saints. So that's the, the, the leaders of the church are to equip all of us, the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So we, we are brought into this family not as, not as spectators, we're not watching the trained professionals do a job. We are all called together to serve in ministry as saints in God's household. Each of us who, who, who bears the name Christian, we are, we are called to this work of ministry. So even be thinking, what does that mean for me? How, how has God built me? How has God wired me? What, what gifts am I called to bring to bear on this body to build it up into him who is the head? What is God calling you to do? To what extent are you building up the body of Christ? Or you might put it in another way, in a more challenging way, to what extent are you tearing down the body of Christ? Or neglecting to build up the body of Christ by not applying your gifts and following this command? If you are a Christian, you are built, you are called to serve in ministry, to work in the church, to serve the world. You will likely get a paycheck from someone else. You will likely learn all kinds of, of skills and, and, and expertise in other kinds of fields, whether it's medical or educational or manufacturing or whatever. You're probably going to have another job. 
You may never even serve officially on a, a specific ministry team or committee or council, but, but we as Christians, each of us, are built and called to give ourselves to the growth of the body, to give ourselves to the growth and the health of the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. Each Christian is called as priest and minister in God's family. And thirdly, this guiding principle, yet still God calls some to serve uniquely as elders and as deacons. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves, speaking to the overseers, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that word again. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the, the Holy Spirit has appointed some uniquely in this body to oversee the church. In Greek, that word is episkopos. So the scope, like what you see, someone that's looking over the church, watching out for, looking over, caring for God's people. So not inconsistent with the principle that everyone is priest and minister is the clear fact that, that God appoints some, calls some uniquely as leaders within the church. Some of you will be called uniquely to serve as elder and deacon. Maybe for some this would be a, a paid job, a, a vocation, something that you give your life to, something that you provide for your family with by working on a church staff. Or maybe it's as a volunteer. Maybe it's just giving up the, your, your time for the sake of the church. Maybe for some it's for a season. Maybe for some it's for a lifetime. But God does call and appoint some people to work uniquely in these offices. We see evidence in the New Testament of the apostles appointing elders uh, in almost every church mentioned in the New Testament. So this is, a, this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. In almost every single church that's mentioned, there are elders, plurality, serving as overseers of each congregation. There are elders in all of the churches that Paul founded in the New Testament. This is in Acts chapter 14, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. There's elders in the church in Jerusalem, elders in the church at Ephesus, in Crete, in the churches throughout the Roman Empire, in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, in Bithynia, and on and on and on and on. In almost all of the churches in the New Testament, you see this office, this role of overseer in the church. Jesus is the head of the church. All Christians are priests and ministers, and some are called as elders and some are called as deacons under the headship of Christ. You could maybe even, and Marcus will talk next week more about deacons, but you could maybe think of it like this, that, that elders are the servant leaders and the deacons are the lead servants. That may be a helpful way to distinguish among, between those two offices. So let's talk for a bit about elders. Again, you'll see this term elder and uh, overseer, or again, uh, some of the older translations, bishop, used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. So, so as you're reading along and you see the term elder, or as you see the word overseer, you can understand that those are really talking about that same role, the one who is overseeing a local congregation. The word pastor um, is, occurs only once in the New Testament in Ephesians 4.11 to refer to a leader in a particular church. He gave some as pastors or as shepherds and teachers for the church. 
You could really even think more in terms of the word pastor as a, a function of the role, in the sense that, that elders and overseers are called to, to care for and shepherd and lead to pastor God's people. So to keep it really simple, if you ask yourself, what do elders do? What is the role of an elder? Here it is. They feed and they lead. Elders feed and they lead. This is, this is the function of this office of elder. You see, these are actually the two things, too, that distinguish the office from, of elder from the office of deacon. That the, the elders are called to, to be able to teach, and they are called, by definition, as overseers, managers of this household of God. We saw already in, in Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. You're called to lead among this people. In 1 Peter, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight over it, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. In Hebrews 13, the leaders are, are called to the, keeping watch over the souls of the community. It's one of leadership. Elders are called to lead and called to feed, called to teach. We see in Titus 1, for example, that's another one of the pastoral epistles in which Paul gives this list of qualifications again for the office of elder. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is the role of an elder, one of leader and one of teacher. You can see even in 1 Timothy 5, and we'll get to this, God willing, in the next few weeks, that, that Paul brings these two things together really, really neatly in 1 Timothy 5, 17, where he says, let the, let the elders who rule well, who are, who are leading well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who are preaching and teaching. So you can see these things brought together in the office of elder. And for some of you, for some of you, especially if you've been uh, at this church for a while or maybe another um, church with elders, all of this is very familiar. But for some, I know this is a very new concept. You're not used to hearing terms like elder or deacon or how they're, how they're, what role they play in the church. And it's very important, as we see, that, that Paul's appointing this in all of these churches that he's planting. He says, this is, this is what these churches need. This is what our church needs. Elders lead and they teach. And so Paul, in his very orderly fashion, provides this list of qualifications for the specific role. And to a certain extent, we see this first qualification in verse 1, this, this idea of aspiration, right? What does the text say? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There is this, this calling, this compulsion to serve in the church in this particular way. And this calling should come from, from the inside. It literally means to, to set your heart on, to, to stretch out your hand. Someone's calling. You can get it. It's fine. It's fine, just step out. Specifically, the idea is that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart, calling you to serve and use your gifts in this particular capacity, that you aspire to it. This is not something that you're strong-armed into or you're doing under compulsion from the outside. Something is working in your heart. Some of us have felt this kind of calling, maybe, maybe to the office of elder, maybe to a different role in the church or a different function. But we, we know that sense, that compulsion, that, that draw, that pull that we can't quite explain, but we feel overwhelmingly that God is calling us to this particular thing. That's what he's saying there, this aspiration. 
John Stott uh, was a Christian writer. He, he wrote that, that Paul is not condoning here selfish ambition for the, for the prestige and the power that often uh, accompanies um, ordained pastoral ministry. But he's recognizing that, this, that the pastorate is a noble task, that, that it involves the care and nurture of God's people, and that it is a, a laudable desire to serve in this particular way. It's a noble task. It's a, it's a burden-bearing office. So there must be a sense of internal calling. And here Paul provides this list or um, qualifications or marks of those who serve as elder. Of course, this is not an exhaustive list. You'll, you'll notice there's all kinds of things that, that you would expect Paul to, to mention in this list of qualifications for an elder or a pastor. He mentions nothing, for example, of prayer, which is very surprising. He, 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 and we'll kind of talk about what he's really getting at as he lays out this list. But he does, he, it does help to give us some sense of the kind of person fit for this particular role. So there in verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. Now, even with that essentially first qualification, it feels like it knocks all of us out, right? Above reproach, without reproach. Another way to translate that word, and maybe some of your translations do this, they refer to it as blameless. Well, that's a tall order, right? John Calvin commenting on this passage in 1 Timothy, he says, this, this means that, that, the, that an elder should not be tainted with any disgrace that might detract from his authority in the church. It is, of course, not possible to find a man who is faultless. Right? That's none of us. That's none of us. He says, it's one thing to be weighed down with the ordinary faults that, that do not tarnish a person's reputation permanently because most other good men share such faults. But it's a different thing altogether to have a reputation that is derided and blackened by dark scandal. There's, some, there's, there's no one faultless. But those who serve in this particular role in office should not have lives marked by scandal and disrepute. Now, is there a clear line? Like, how bad could this guy's history be? What kind of transformation could this guy have experienced early on? Even the Apostle Paul himself, who was writing this letter, probably the irony is not lost on him that he was murdering Christians. And so it takes a lot of wisdom, right? It takes some, it, Paul, Paul is, is gracious to us. God is gracious to us in giving us these, these marks, these kind of perimeters, these ideas of what this looks like. But it takes a community of God's people. It takes the church to, to lay hands on and to ordain and to put these men in place and to serve in this way because it's not always so simple. But Paul says, first, this overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, it's, um, and, and in the Greek, you may know that the, the word order is very important. And usually you put the first word of most importance, uh, the, the word that's, that's put first in a, in a phrase or in a sentence is the word of most emphasis. And so this literally says um, a, a, a one woman man. So the emphasis is on this oneness, this unity, this togetherness that a husband shares with his wife. This does not mean that an elder must be married. Some have interpreted it, I think, wrongly that way, that an elder must be married. I don't think it means that an elder must be married. That would disqualify Paul. That would disqualify Jesus, right? Any qualification that disqualifies Jesus is probably a bad one. You've probably got it wrong on that, probably. 
But what Paul is saying is that, that, that for, for those who are married, for those who do have a wife, that that oneness that they share with their spouse is critical to serve in this office. An elder must be committed to the one, physically committed, spiritually committed, mentally committed, covenant together, this one man with his one wife, meaning your body, your heart, your attention is devoted exclusively to her. It says an elder must be sober-minded. Maybe if you have the, the NIV version, it'll say temperate. And some of us translate temperate to mean, um, for example, just doesn't drink. We, we think of it as a, a teetotaler. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about that. He says, temperance is unfortunately one of those words that has changed its meaning over the years. And now it seems to mean usually teetotaler, but that's not what it meant before. It means, it means nothing of the sort. Temperance refers not specifically to, to drink, but really to all pleasures. It's more encompassing than drink. It meant abstaining, but not going, it didn't mean abstaining, but going to the right length and no further. C.S. Lewis is saying this, this word of, of temperance, the idea here really is to live a life of balance and moderation. A sense of, of reasonableness in, in, in how you manage your appetites. You are not mastered by your appetites. You are tempered. In this sense, it overlaps with what Paul mentions next. You are self-controlled. You are sober-minded. You are self-controlled. You are sensible. You are reasonable. You are prudent. This idea of self-control actually has the idea, uh, you'll see this word uh, and its variants throughout the New Testament, but the idea is um, that you have good judgment, that you see things as they are, that you see yourself as you are, that there's not this huge gap between the way others see you in the way you see yourself. It's related to the idea of being self-aware. You know people who are self-aware, right? And you know people who are painfully unaware. <laughs> they think of themselves in one way or they're, they're reading a situation one way, but really everybody else in the room is seeing it completely differently. And Paul says that, that's not who you want to oversee the church. That's not who you want caring for your church. This, this person must be very, very self-aware, very, very aware of himself, of his limitations, of his strengths, of the body, of its needs. An elder must be respectable, dignified, honorable, Again, with this idea of, of respectability, it's pretty interesting because what is respectable in one culture or what is dignified in one culture or what is appropriate in one culture is not always respectable or dignified or appropriate in another. You can think of, for example, kilts in Scotland or the way the Maasai warriors dress in Kenya. Respectability is very contextual, right? It matters who the people are, the community that you're in. The time period that you're in, the city, the community, all, all of that. And so you think, well, is this person respectable? Do people respect him? You can see already that the qualifications that Paul's laying out here are, are largely about the way this person is perceived. You see that? It's mainly about how people on the outside are relating to this particular person. And are they, bringing, are they bringing honor and dignity to the church or disrepute and scandal? 
He says an elder must be hospitable. I, I love this word in the Greek, it's phylloxenon, which means literally a love of strangers. That the, the elder must be a, a person who, who loves the stranger, who loves the other. This means that an elder must have a, an open home and an open, an open life, an open heart. Maybe he's an extrovert, maybe he's an introvert, maybe, but, but, but what, whatever his personality, in keeping with his personality, in keeping with his means, in keeping with his gifting, that he loves and he welcomes others into his life and into his heart. And not just those with whom he most identifies. You know, we, we've used that phrase before, have, have an eye for your neighbor. You're bringing people into your home, that you're, that you're hosting meals, that you're caring for people. You have an open life and an open home, able to teach. Again, this specifically is noted as a distinction between elders and deacons, that elders are called and they must be able to teach. Now, that doesn't mean, you may think, oh, well, that, that's not me. Maybe all of these other ones, I feel this pull and this draw to, to serve in this capacity, but I'm not the teacher. I don't want to do what Justin does. I don't want to do what Marcus does. But that's not what it's saying here, right? It's just saying able to teach. Maybe that's one-on-one. Maybe that's a kind of mentoring relationship. Maybe that's a small group relationship. Maybe that's more like a Bible class or a Sunday school class. Or maybe it is preaching and teaching. Or maybe it's teaching in the, in the school or the university or in the seminary. But an elder must know the Bible, be able to explain the Bible, be able to understand theology, be able to understand and know good doctrine and be able to refute the bad doctrine and the false doctrine. Speak against what is untrue, he, he says, as, as well, Paul will write in Titus, must hold firm to the sure word as taught. It says there in verse 3, an elder must not be a drunkard. Again, this word has application beyond just alcohol, meaning not addicted to anything harmful. Not given to addiction. Not violent. Not belligerent. Not quick-tempered. Not a bully, but gentle. Leaders in the church must be able to control their tempers. They don't carry resentment. They don't carry all the grudges. They're not hypercritical. They, elders are inclined to, to, to tenderness. They, they, they resort to toughness only when the circumstances demand it, to care for the church out of love. Remember, that's what, that's what Paul's saying to Timothy earlier in this passage, right? Be gentle, but what? But wage the good war, Right? An elder, an elder and a leader in the church must know how to balance those two things, to be, to be very gentle, to be very gracious, not violent. As he says here, not quarrelsome. An elder must be one who's, who's regularly working for reconciliation, working for peace. One who is working to bring others together. There's all kinds of things that can separate us, right? We know that. From this last year, it can be almost anything. Elders work together to bring, bring folks together, to call them together on this singular mission. They're not pushing each other apart. And, th and this should be seen, and, and as, as a church, as we, as we assess our elders, we should be looking at, is this, is this quality, is this uh, qualification demonstrated in their words, in their actions, in their social media posts, in their demeanor? Are they peacemakers or are they troublemakers? I would encourage you too, even as you're, I mean, I, I see pastors, I'm so shocked. I was having this conversation recently. Um, I've seen some pastors, especially through the craziness of 2020, that have just been, they, they have been marked by anger and division 
and I think bullying. It's just so sad. And I think I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking. The, the Bible is speaking specifically against these kinds of characteristics. He must be not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a brawler, not a lover of money. An elder must be, Jesus talked about in John 10, the difference between a shepherd and a hireling. Right? Someone who is there because he loves and cares for the sheep or someone who's just there for the money. This must be a shepherd. An elder must shepherd. Of course, Paul says, even in the same letter in, in chapter 5, that an elder, especially one who, who teaches and preaches, uh, and preaches, is worthy of the double honor and should be compensated by the community. So he's holding these things in tension, right? The elder shouldn't be there just for the money. And he's telling that to the elder. And then he's telling the church, and he should compensate the guy, right? Both. It's both and. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? This doesn't mean that he has to have a perfect relationship with his spouse and his children. That doesn't exist, right? That doesn't exist. But I think it does mean that an elder must have not a perfect relationship, but an exemplary one. That you can point people to say, especially younger couples, as they're entering into this marriage, and you can say, look at these, look at these elders. Look, at, look how they relate to their spouses. That's the kind, no, they're not perfect. Of course, they have all kinds of struggles and, and issues, just like normal broken people. But this is an exemplary marriage. This is one that you can point people to, to model, to look at, and to say, there are some really healthy and good things happening there. That they're openly admirable. That their children are, are, are well-disciplined. But they have a well-run household. The, the logic here, you see, and this is what Paul's been doing all along, that, that, and we've noted this already, that, that, in, that an elder over a church is like a dad over a family. And if he cannot manage and disciple this small church of his household, how can he shepherd and disciple the household of God? Now, I think there's some good questions here. How bad can a toddler be? How rebellious can a teenager be? Those are real questions, right? This is what Paul's saying. He's saying an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's family? Do you see how much wisdom is required here for the body of Christ? Do you see how Paul doesn't give us easy answers? He says that, they should live exemplary lives. They should manage their household well. He doesn't say how, 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 many, how many problems can occur. So this is done in community. This is done as a family of God. If you are, a parent, if you are married and you have children, and, and it seems like the, those, those, those with children, the, the issues, they don't get easier. They just get more complicated as the children grow, even into adulthood and beyond, right? I can see a lot of heads nodding, right, who have adult children and then grandchildren. It's not so simple to parent in a family, is it? Kids are different. Seasons of life are different. Personalities are different. All kinds of things are different. It takes wisdom. It takes humility. It takes truth. And it takes love. And it takes leadership, right? That's what God is saying here with the church. It takes all of these things for us to live together in harmony, for us to have a happy family. This is what it takes. This is the kind of body that I want to have. 
he says here towards the end, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. The leader must be not easily swell with pride. It must be, I heard, heard one writer say this, that the, the goal is to guard the office against those who would be tempted to be puffed up by it, right? There are some people that you think, if they got into a leadership position, my gosh, their head wouldn't even make it through the door, right? Paul says you got to watch out, especially those who are, who are, who are new in the game, right? Re- recent converts. These, these should be seasoned Christians, have been in the family a while, caring for the family. They have a track record. And he says they must be well thought of by outsiders so that they may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Again, you see that most of these qualifications are things seen from the outside, right? In this sense, the public nature of the office is in view. The question is, how do others... How do others relate to and see this person? Are those the kind of people that we want to represent us as a church, as a community, or not? That's what Paul is getting at here as he's telling Timothy, set in order this, this house. Of course, this is about an, an, an internal character manifesting itself externally in life and behavior, right? In other words, this, this list of qualifications isn't primarily about giftedness. It's about character. Character lived out in real life among real people. People who are watching. Paul says this is what it looks like to be an elder. He, he is essentially primarily concerned with, and this may be troubling for some of us, he is primarily concerned with the, the intersection of perception and reality. Because perception is important. Perception is important in terms of of leadership and governance of the church. He says, these things should be together and unified, flowing from this internal call of the Spirit to submit to the headship of the Lord, to serve and use their gifts as ministers in the body, to equip the people for the work of ministry. I know that's a lot for seven verses. Let Let me land the plane with this. God wants his people, God wants us to be well loved well-cared for, well-fed, well-taught, well-protected, well-served by good leaders. That's what he wants for us as Christians. That we're not left alone, that, that our body should be marked by truth and love and humility and leadership. And he's established this, this structure within the household to uphold those values. Now I know, as in any family, um, you know, some of the... Uh, the, the worst abuse, I think, that, that a person can experience is abuse from, from their parents or those in authority over them who are called to love and serve them. And, and, and maybe next is those um, from leaders in the church. Just how destructive that is to a person's soul and their view of God. So I know that abuse within the church is, is such a, a real and powerful and shameful thing. Overseers as in a family, can be abusive or manipulative or narcissistic or cowardly. But, but just because some dads neglect their kids or hurt their kids doesn't, doesn't mean that we don't need dads, right? It just means that it just exposes this deeper need that we need better dads, 
We need better dads to love their kids, to care for their kids, to care and serve the family. That's what Paul's getting at for the church. This is God's design for the family. This is God's design for the church. Loving, humble, servant leaders to look out for and watch out for the souls of the people. Have you, have you thought about that? That, that this, this role that, that I occupy, that Marcus occupies, that, that Deloach and Beavers occupy, it's a, it's a task to be thinking about and caring for your soul. Some of you give almost no thought to your own soul. We're called to think about it, to pray for you, to, think, to, to bring things to bear that bring you life for the long haul. God has called his people to, these leaders in the church to help lead, our, our, lead us together in this charge to be ministers in God's house, to, to give our lives in worship of Jesus, who is the head, to, I mean, as he says here, to, to worship this king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever. This is the, the trumpet cry of the leadership of the church. This is what we're all about. Let me, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for uh, this short letter that you wrote to your, your, your son, that, that, that you wrote, um, God, to, to, Paul, to, to Timothy from Paul that you wrote to us, that your spirit is using these, these ancient words to speak to us today. God, we confess that your word is true. Your word is timeless. God, your word is a, is a, is a sharp sword that cuts to our soul. So God, I, I pray even now, I pray that there are some here, God, who have that stirring in their heart to serve in this role even as elder. And God, that they would, they would talk to you about that. God, they would talk to others about that. They would talk to us about that. God, no doubt there are many others here who are, who are feeling a call to serve. They hear that, that they are priests and ministers in this family, and we are asking the question, what does that mean for me? God, I pray that, you would, that they would bring that to you too. They would, they would be patient with that. They would be humble with that. But God, also they would be courageous with that call upon their life. And so God, help us as a, as a church, as a family of God. That's what we're talking about this morning, God. As we're talking about how do we behave in your family, God, help us to be people marked by love and truth and humility. God, order and care. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.